This Dharma Talk was presented at the Austin Zen Center in Austin, Texas. For more information, visit austinzencenter.org. Good morning. Let's see. I don't know how many Dharma Talks I've given over Zoom at this point, but I am really, really, really looking forward to actually being in the room. (laughs) Actually being in the room with people. I suppose a lot of you are feeling the same way. I recently had a, uh, when was it, two days ago, I think, I had a dokusan for the first time in a year, almost a year and a half, in the actual dokusan room at the Zen Center. And I cannot say how much a difference it makes to meet in embodied face to face body to body actually and in the middle of that talk that discussion uh one of the things that came out of it was this question of what is that anyway you know, what is it in terms of communicating um, you know i think i said something in that in that discussion about how I didn't actually think it was like, you know, when we're on Zoom or mediated through a screen, we have a an image in front of us and we have audio, you know. And those are two pretty big senses, right? Sight and sound. But there's something else. And I think I think I said something like, actually I think it's our stomachs that are talking to one another. <laughs> And that, or gut, maybe it's gut. It's the gut that talks and listens and receives. So anyway, this is not what I intended to talk about today. I actually had a whole bunch of ideas uh, during the week um, about what I might bring up today in this talk. And uh, I will confess that the week got away from me. And so what you will hear today is, you know, I don't even know yet (laughs) what will come out, but I will talk a little bit about some of the themes that have been coming up for me. And uh, I don't even need to assume I can hear from others some of the themes that come up right now, given where we are at as a collective, as we... uh, turn to this question of how do we come back to something that may we think of as like normal some normalcy even though it's not over it's funny seeing some some of the responses on the survey that we we sent out there are a lot of views (laughs) there are a lot of views out there and some some views are you know tightly held to And so it's always a question of what are my views that I'm tightly holding to and how how can I release them? That in and of itself is a radical question, right? Because many people don't want to release their views, actually. (laughs) I, I would say all of us, actually, many times don't want to release our views. Or maybe we don't even know that we don't want to release our views. It's just that we don't know any other way than to find a view and to cling to it and to assert it, to make it into a thing that we stand by. But this practice is actually asking for something else. We come to practice oftentimes to find out something. Finding out something about our inmost being, our true nature. We don't know what that means, what that refers to. But sometimes we come to practice because we know that something may not be working. We feel stuck. So I wanted to talk a little bit. I was going to tell a story about one of our ancestors, one of our Indian ancestors, Upagupta. So I'm going to read a little passage from a case in the Book of Serenity about our ancestor Upagupta, and then we'll go from there. 
So this is part of a commentary from a uh, case 79 of the Book of Serenity. And I'll just read this passage first. A man with views attached to his bodily self came to the patriarch Upagupta and sought initiation. Upagupta said, the rule of seeking initiation is that you believe in my words and don't disobey my instructions. The man said, I have already come to take refuge with you, master. I would certainly obey your command. Then Upagupta magically produced a precipitous cliff on a mountain, soaring high with big trees on it, and he made him climb up a tree. And under the tree, also, he produced a chasm a thousand cubits wide. Then Upagupta bade him let go of his foothold. The man did as he was told and let go. Upagupta bade him let go one hand, and he let go a hand. Finally, you can see where this is going. Finally, Upagupta bade him let go of the other hand. The man replied, if I let go the other hand, I'll fall into the abyss and die. Upagupta said, before you promised me to do as I instructed, how can you disobey me? At that moment, that man's love for his body vanished. He let go his hands and fell. He didn't see tree or abyss anymore, whereupon he realized the fruition of the path. So this commentary is part of a commentary of this koan, which I'll get to in a moment. But what do you think about that instruction? This fable of our ancestor Upagupta creating this device of a chasm and a and a you know a cliff to perch on. What does hearing this story do to us if we think of this story as uh, an invitation in our own lives? Yeah, Bruce. Well, my first thought was, um, I think. There's a lot of trust required in that, of, of this person who's giving the instructions, because if I trust the person that's telling me to let go, then it's relatively easier to say, well, I don't know what's going to happen, but this person wouldn't tell me to do this if it were going to harm me. Right. But if I, but there's also at the same time, this, this shadow potential that if people want to be told, here's how to, here's, you know, like they, they, they say, I don't know, I can't know, you do clearly. And they trust without um, merit, with, without a valid basis for that trust, someone who is not what they think they are and is not offering what they think that they're going to get. You know what I'm saying? Like, like there's, so, so I, that for me, I think, is is key like faith not in the sense of i know this but faith in the sense of i trust that even though i don't understand it i've got a you know i trust my gut if nothing else like like this is going to be a good way to go even though i have really no way of, of proving that yes so mainly trust right how much trust is needed and how, what is the relationship with, between trusting and knowing? Does trust require knowing? There's a famous, uh, well, when I, uh, earlier in the week, I was actually meeting with Bruce, and I said, hey, what should I talk about this weekend? <laughs> and he said, I think you should talk about not knowing. <laughs> You all know some of the stories of not knowing, right? Probably one of the most famous ones is the is the not knowing in the story of Bodhidharma encountering uh, the Emperor Wu on his journey. The Emperor Wu, you fall familiar with this story? <laughs> some of you are nodding. Some of you are 
I don't I'm, I don't have it on me right now, but I can just say that the story basically Bodhidharma traveled from southern India to China with the teachings. And I can't remember exactly how he got that idea in his mind. It may have been something that happened in a dream. But he went on this uh, this in, intense travel uh, to make it to China from, from India. And he was going from south to north, and he encountered, he, as he was traveling, the emperor Wu asked him for an audience. And the emperor basically said, I've heard such good things about you. I feel like you're, you're like this total prophet. And I just want to say, I've got, you know, I've done all these things for, uh, um, for bolstering the Dharma in this land. I've created temples and I've funded monasteries, all these different things that I've done, erected stupas. What's the merit? Bodhidharma said, no merit. Of course, the emperor didn't like to hear that. Right? Well, what have I been doing all this for? <laughs> There's no merit. What's the good of it? Right? We hear this a lot, too, in this question of like, well, what good is Zen for? What good is sitting for? And often the answer is, it's not good for anything. So why would we do it? So the emperor, taken aback by Bodhidharma's words, said, who is this that stands before me? Like, who are you <laughs> to tell me <laughs> that I've got no merit? <laughs> and Bodhidharma's classic response is, don't know. Who are you? don't know. In later koans that have been collected, there's the other aspect of, no, of not knowing as being the most intimate. Not knowing is most intimate. So in trusting, letting go of your foothold, letting go of your handholds with a chasm beneath you, what does it mean to trust is it, is it an act of trust? Is it an act of knowing? Is it an act of faith? What causes the man who comes to Upagupta to be able to do this? Jose. Yes, I see you. So I think uh, the trust is also interlinked with the sort of overcoming fear because, uh, and because uh, this story reminds me of uh, jumping off the 100-foot pole Mm. where you can either, you know, cling on to, you know, what you've accomplished or cling on to uh, some sort of, um, uh, you know, some sort of safety. Uh, and then, of course, uh, if someone's asking you to jump off the pole, you know, uh, jump into the chasm, uh, there's a, you have to overcome your own fear of, of uh, clinging, uh, that's established by clinging on to safety. Uh, so I see this trust and this fear sort of uh, coupled together. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Jose, you uh, you guessed the the story that I was going to read in a moment, <laughs> and actually the Upagupta story that I just uh, I just told comes from that's one of the places that it appears is in the commentary to the koan of Changsha advancing a step. So let me turn to that. Here's the case. Changsha had a monk ask Master Hui. How was it before you saw Nanchuan? Hui remained silent. The monk said, How about after seeing him? Hui said, There couldn't be anything else. The monk returned and related this to Changsha. Changsha said, The man sitting atop the hundred-foot pole, though he's gained entry, this is not yet the real. Atop the 100-foot pole, he should step forward. The universe in all directions is the whole body. The monk said, Atop the 100-foot pole, how can you step forward? Changsha said, The mountains of Lang, the rivers of Li. The monk said, I don't understand. Changsha said, The whole land is under the imperial sway. This hundred-foot pole that uh, that Jose brought up, and that is the topic of this uh, 
uh, particular case in the Book of Serenity. Sometimes you can think of the hundred foot pole, it's, it's uh, referred to as a place of accomplishment. You've managed to get up there, right? Sometimes it's referred to as a place that you fall down to from another peak. But the point is, the hundred foot pole is a, it's a point that you are at. When are you there? When are we at the hundred, the top of the hundred foot pole? Whether we've fallen down from a high or whether we scrambled up to the top, when are we there? Right now, <laughs> we're there right now. And again, this moment, in every moment, we are atop a hundred foot pole. We may be at top of the hundred foot pole feeling smug about our accomplishments. Or we may be at the top of a hundred foot pole looking down like the man in the story with Upagupta. I'm not going to step forward. How am I supposed to step forward? I would die if I step forward. No matter what our situation is, what is the hundred foot pole that we're being asked to take a step off of, to take a step forward from? Speaking with people over these uh, last few weeks, actually, there's been a lot of, as you can imagine, a lot of fear and trepidation and anxiety about entering back into some sense of you know, again, this idea of like going back to normal. In terms of uh, our own reopening at Austin Zen Center, um, one thing that really strikes me in in looking at surveys or hearing people talk about returning to practice at AZC, that almost, well, I will say all of us, whether we realize it or not, we have some some view some expectation. I think Shu, in his letter that I hope many of you got already, there's a letter that came out from Shu as our new board president, this idea of expectation. We all have expectations. How do we hold those expectations? Our stories. How do we hold those? And then how do we let go of those? And how do we know if we're clinging? How do we know if we're, um, you know, when are we ever ready, actually, to step forward from our expectations? And what does that look like? Sometimes when people say, oh, I'm really looking forward to getting back to the Sangha. I'm one of them. <laughs> really looking forward to being with the Sangha again. And when I hear that, in, even in my own mind, the question arises for me, well, who's that? There are the people that I've been practicing with here in, this, in your little squares. <laughs> and then there's the people who used to be practicing at the Austin Zen Center in person. And then there's the people who we don't even know yet who they are and when they'll come. So who is the Sangha that we're returning to practice with? And the building, <laughs> the temple itself, impermanence, right? On the superficial level, we don't have the same washing machine anymore. <laughs> we won't have the same paint on the walls. Right? This hundred foot pole turns out that we are uniquely on top of our own hundred foot pole moment by moment. And then we have a collective 100-foot pole as our community. We have, a, uh, we have a place that we go back to, that we take care of. For some people, the 100-foot pole is coming to some realization that what I thought to be true may not be true. The things that I might rely on, that relying on without even realizing that we're relying on, may not be true. This morning, I'm not sure many of you know uh, about this, those of you who are here in Austin, 
This morning, I awoke and saw a news story, and then shortly after received a text from a friend who happened to be downtown watching a show late at night and had to be evacuated because of a mass shooting that happened in Austin. Two people critically injured, 11 people taken to the hospital in addition to those two, happened sometime. A mass shooting in Austin. A mass shooting in Austin. So far, I don't think anybody, there are any deaths. There's no No, no deaths, but 11 people in the hospital. 13, I heard. 13 were hurt. So when I go walking downtown, I don't have any expectation. I feel safe. When I enter a place of practice like the Austin Zen Center and I find my seat and I'm able to sit down, you know, we say we're cultivating a safe place for practice. And we are. But how safe? Are we ever safe? What does it mean to be safe? How do we step off that hundred foot pole? And what does it look like? Does it look like, oh, going out and buying a gun because you think that's going to make you safe? (laughs) For some, maybe that's what you do. Maybe that's what people do. For some people, maybe they decide, well, I'm not going out. A lot of people who are uh, coming out of this, uh, this crazy last 16 months, 17 months of being locked down and, and hesitant, protective, yeah. despite having been vaccinated, there are many people who still do not feel safe. And there's something, there's this quiet animal of our body that is... Uh, that may be feeling something like fear or anxiety, attachment to um, safety. You know, I was thinking the other day about our well-being ceremony that we chant every, we have a well-being ceremony um, every Wednesday evening. And uh, people are, uh, you know, submit names to be uh, invoked in that ceremony. And, um, When we chant for the well-being of the people whose names are submitted for the ceremony, what are we chanting for? Is it that our wish is that the people whose names we speak will get better? Physically, emotionally, mentally, psychologically? Is that part of it? Is that all of it? What does it mean to chant for well-being? What are we doing in that activity? Will we say that we failed if the person that we chant for gets sicker and dies? Will that be a failure on our part? Our chanting didn't work? It's really interesting to tease that apart a little bit to uncover the layers of like, well, what are we doing when we practice? Do we get to a point where we now believe that stepping off the hundred foot pole is just like, well, that will, you know, yay, that's the way to go. And have some kind of false sense of security that like, okay, I know the answer now. It's just step forward. There's not knowing. And then there's just kind of throwing out the, uh, the, uh, the, the possibility of maybe something not, maybe not knowing, but like recognition, recognizing the truth of something is maybe a little bit softer than the so-called knowing. The difference between knowledge and belief. And I, I realize I'm getting too philosophical here, but What does it mean when Bodhidharma says, don't know? Is he admitting a failure of himself? Not even in the least. 
and that's what's so perplexing to Emperor Wu. How can you say you don't? Who is this guy? <laughs> he, he says I don't have any merit from all this effort that I've been putting in, and then I ask him who he is, and he says he doesn't even know. How can this person, you know, be a sage? Uh, turns out that Bodhidharma uh, likes to turn things on their heads. And uh, I highly recommend uh, spending a little bit of time with him. Pat, Pat uh, Yinks and I have been reading Bodhidharma over the past several months together. And uh, having read Bodhidharma many times before, um, each time there's something fresh and new. Some way, continuously, where I feel like I've got a fixed view and I'm being invited to let go of that fixed view. I think I know what my trajectory is. I think I, you know, I've been practicing for a long time and I have plans and I've got plans for the Austin Zen Center and I've, you know, but ultimately I have no idea what's going to happen. Not to me as an individual, not to the community that I'm a part of, That could be grounds for um, shutting down, for heightening anxiety, a casting about of something, something to uh, find stability in, right? Because when we find that stability, maybe, just maybe, then we can feel like, oh, now I feel like I can step forward because I've got something stable. But what if in the swirling uncertainty and unknowing, there is no such stability that's even uh, in our imagination. How do we step forward into that? And when we do that stepping forward, if we can, maybe we don't step forward. Maybe we perch, you know, for a while on that hundred foot pole and look down at the little people down below having conversations we can't hear and we feel uh, above and lofty. So this question of what is the hundred foot pole in this moment? How do we engage that question? One way that I will say that we normally go to, I should maybe just say from speak for myself that I normally kind of end up having to sort of run through is my idea of what it is. So in our, uh, our search for, I don't know, progress, um, getting to a place where um, we kind of know what we're doing and we know what we're about, in that search, How does that itself limit us? So having this idea, like, for example, oh, I don't know, a recognition of one's own uh, unconscious biases that become conscious. When we have an unconscious bias, for example, towards people or ideologies or situations, we have this bias. When we come to terms with it and we say, oh, look, there it is. I had no idea. How do we even know that? What, the, what that is? You know, how does it manifest in our lives? And then we, maybe it comes to our consciousness. It's very easy to then create a story around it, right? Oh, I need to do some uh, retraining. I don't mean to say that any of that, uh, what our brains kind of come up with as, oh, here's the path forward. Okay, I know what the path forward is. That, that any of that is um, not a worthwhile endeavor. Of course it is. But just maybe taking a step back from our ideas about things 
taking a peek underneath those ideas, actually. What does that require? How do you do it? How do you take a step back from fixed views? Views that I would say, you know, we come to with great gusto <laughs> and a lot of searching. And so it's not like it doesn't mean anything. But how do you hold up this, oh, here's the thing I need to do. Whether it's, uh, I need to go into uh, a group that so I can unlearn my unconscious biases. That may be something that one decides. This is the next step for me. Wonderful. And when one does that, takes that step, how to also make space and room for what's underneath it. I can say for myself, when I come up with an idea of what uh, what needs to happen. Oh, this is what needs to happen. I need to, blah, 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 you know, become better at organizing, <laughs> be better at scheduling myself and then actually listening to my schedule. Whatever it is, right? We come to these ideas and those moments where we feel like we know something, that's kind of a relief, right? You have this feeling of like, ah, now I know something. I have a way forward as opposed to being in that miasma of not knowing, <laughs> Wonderful when that happens and there's a feeling of being able to step forward. But what if that doesn't come? And what if it comes and we go forward and it's not the right thing, right? How do we know? And why am I even talking about knowing when actually most intimately is not knowing? Maybe I'm being too confusing. <laughs> Taking a step off the hundred foot pole, again, in the moment, when we come up with something that we know, how do we let go of that understanding while simultaneously embodying the understanding? We don't turn away from the understanding. How do we hold both? Normally, in order to make sense of things or uh, feel safe in this world, to put down our um, you know, the, the clouds of what do I do, right? Normally when we want to, we, we want to step forward and we want to have faith or trust. What if faith and trust are not forthcoming though? What is this taking a step back as opposed to taking a step forward? What do you do when you're at that, on that pole? What comes out of taking, uh, taking a pause and admitting, I don't know. What happens in the body? What happens in the gut? Marco. Yes, Karen. I think this is really, um, it's important to me. And it feels like there's fear you know, that I can have fear in the body, thinking about jumping off even shorter poles. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, sort of respecting the fear changes it. Say more about respecting the fear. Well, you know, when we're afraid, I think we usually, we, we kind of know we're afraid, but we're controlled by the fear. 
or something, you know, so you want to freeze up or go away. And there's, I can imagine having the fear and still jumping with the fear. Mm. Yeah. Right. If you wait for the fear to go before you act, sometimes yeah. you don't have that luxury. Yeah. I And I've been thinking, I mean, I think, I feel like this could be, you know, any number of things in any day, but I had a flash of, you know, like the real thing is all of our doctors and nurses got up and went to work every day the last year and a half. I mean, literally jumping off the pole. Um, yeah. Stepping forward. Sometimes it's easiest to step forward when you don't have a choice. Like when it's already, you're, you're already on that. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. But often we do have a choice, right? And that's where we kind of get tangled up in our own feet. Because it's like, oh, look, choice. <laughs> Which one should I do? Right? And then we bring that into the realm of intellectualization, discrimination, which is an absolutely useful tool. We humans have the ability <laughs> of, dis of you know, discernment, right? Of weighing options. And again, it's not that we stop weighing our options, but at some point, it's not the options and our, you know, 12 step plan of execution of these different possibilities you know, we, we generate these checklists in our, I mean, I do, right? Checklists. Okay, got these things down. Now I can go forward, right? What happens when you lose your checklist? <laughs> what happens when you lose your, your faculties in a way that you're not accustomed to? Which I will say happens as you get older. If you're lucky to get older. I wanted to read the the the, uh, the verse from this koan. The jade man's dream is shattered. One call from the rooster. Looking around on life, all colors are equal. Wind and thunder with news of events. Roust out the hibernating insects. Peach trees, wordless, naturally make a path. When the time and season comes, laboring at the plow, who fears the spring rose knee-deep mud? I want to reread this. The jade man's dream is shattered. One call from the rooster. Looking around on life, all colors are equal. Wind and thunder with news of events roust out the hibernating insects. Peach trees, wordless, naturally make a path. When the time and season comes, laboring at the plow, who fears the spring rose knee-deep mud? So what is this verse saying? What's it encouraging? Any ideas? Who's this jade man whose dream is shattered? Have we all been that jade man whose dreams have been shattered? And then what? One call from the rooster. I like that image. I like that image because, you know, when does the rooster call? In the morning, right? What's the rooster saying? <laughs> Wake up! Looking around on life, 
all colors are equal. All colors are equal. This is pointing to uh, some sense of equanimity. Wind and thunder with news of events. That hits home. This news of events. What to do? Roust out the hibernating insects. Do all of you know about the, uh, have anybody experienced the, um, the cicadas from, uh, up in the, I guess they're in the, I know they're in the Northeast, but also some in the Midwest. So these cicadas that have a 17 year cycle, I believe, or 18, 17 years, I think. When they come out, <laughs> they are everywhere and you cannot see, you, sometimes you can't even see through because they're just, they're flying everywhere. I think the last time that I was really truly in this, in the midst of the cicadas was in, I think, 1990, 1987 as a high school student. <laughs> the noise of these, the roust out the hibernating insects is kind of like it's a force of nature when they come out. Right? Peach trees, wordless, naturally make a path. These images, right, of hibernating insects that are coming out after 17 years, or the peach trees that make a path, naturally, quite naturally, they make a path. The peach tree doesn't say, I think I'll make a path. <laughs> I think I'll bloom today, right? When the time and season come, laboring at the plow. When the time and season come. When should we labor at our plow? Not in the heart of winter. Who fears the spring rose knee-deep mud? This is that fear. Fear of what? Of being of the unknown? Fear of not getting the harvest that we, uh, from, our, from our careful plowing and planting? in endeavoring to find out for ourselves what our own personal hundred foot pole is, we can take a step and back, we can take a step back and say, what story am I holding in my heart and mind right now? What is my story? Maybe you're struggling with your, you know, your teenage daughter who, you know, has ideas <laughs> that, you know, you don't agree with, or that maybe you even fear. Maybe the hundred foot pole in that moment is to uh, learn how to listen as opposed to speak. Maybe it's to learn how to speak instead of passively listening. But how will we know? what taking a step forward off that pole looks like. For some of us, taking a step off the 100-foot pole means making a commitment to our practice or recommitting. I think uh, a lot of us uh, have heard and experienced this last year's made it harder sometimes to practice. There are many people who whom used to be pretty regular in their practice of just sitting who have stopped sitting during this time or who have, um, you know, not even knowing why or not even having a story about it, but just inexplicably like, Oh yeah, I just noticed I'm not doing that thing that I used to find helpful, but I'm not doing it. Why? 
Do we need to know why? Does the person need to know why? Or is it, uh, is it enough to begin with just acknowledgement of, ah, this is what's happening. This is where I've been. I don't know the path forward. I don't even know how I got here. <laughs> but for me, my 100-foot pole might look like just sitting on top of the 100-foot pole for a while. And maybe a terrible wind will come up and blow me off my 100-foot pole. News of a death. Our own frailty. You know, we talk a lot in Zen about, um, well, maybe we don't talk a lot about this, but it comes up a lot, this idea of resilience. You know, human beings are so resilient, right? Until they're not. There are no guarantees. So how do you live with that? And how do you live in a way that is as honest, specifically as honest to yourself as you can be? And that's one of the joys, actually, of practice is slowly learning this trusting. Not that things will be okay. Not that I will be safe. Not that we have a community that we know of that we will return to. We don't need to know to be able to step forward. And in fact, knowing can trip us up. Who am I in this moment? If we have ready-made answers, uh, we're sure to stumble. I had one other thing I wanted to read in closing. This is a, a commentary, another commentary. There's a whole, I mean, if you all know that in, in Zen, there are so many stories, these teaching stories. And the teaching stories aren't just like, oh, here's the message of the teaching story. Because as soon as you come up with the message or the, like, the pithy, like, oh, this is what the story is about, somebody comes along and says, ah, <laughs> how about this? Which is why we have, like, reams and reams of commentaries on commentaries on commentaries of these stories. But this is one. <laughs> this is Wong Song. In the early morning, there's gruel. I'm going to just intersperse my own commentary because I can't help it. <laughs> Living in a monastery every single morning, every morning, there's gruel. With a little gamasio, sesame salt, gruel is delicious. <laughs> Especially after you've been sitting for, I don't know, a couple hours and uh, your stomach's grumbling and somebody comes in and it's like hot, steamy gruel. So in the early morning, there's gruel. If you ask a question, there's an odor of shit. <laughs> he searches it out further for him. He just stumbles and falls in a pile of shit. A fellow running off at the mouth, accompanied by his tongue. I kind of feel like that fellow right now. An embarrassment for the one at the bottom of the pole. When solitariness is not set up, then is the path lofty. At the extreme, it's very much like cutting off and discarding. 
for the first time one believes the sitting cushion isn't heaven. Anybody got to that point? <laughs> After all, there is still this. You bump into it everywhere. How very brilliant. You may leap all you want. So uh, my apologies for the scatteredness of my, uh, my ramblings this morning. But I think the main thing that, um, main thing that I really want to impart to you, to myself, is that it's okay not to know. And we find ourselves every moment in a position where we can step forward or not step forward. But in the next moment, we're atop a hundred foot pole again. How do we live our lives so that when something like fear arises, that we can make space for it, that we don't need to resolve it, that actually, uh, we don't really even have a choice, do we? In whether or not uh, what to do with this next moment. It feels like a choice, but something will happen. So as we all stumble along individually and collectively towards the future, um, I encourage you to Allow for that not knowing. Allow for that space of wonder. Who am I? What is this? Who are you? What is it to practice? Thank you very much. I think we have a few moments for comments before we uh, adjourn to our breakout rooms. Yes, Jose. So uh, this Dharma talk reminded me of, uh, of a small exchange I had uh, at work. Um, so at work, I, you know, there are various committees for different things. And so there's this uh, one committee that one type of committee that I've sat in before as a participant, but then one time I was uh, head of the committee and um, it was more a formality uh, and I, I just had to facilitate, you know, just uh, facilitate the meeting. But at the beginning of the meeting, I told uh, everyone else, including, uh, so this was a, a committee that involved one particular student. Uh, and so it was, uh, it was uh, for, um, uh, for his qualifying uh, committee. And so uh, I'm, I'm in charge of this committee officially. Uh, and so I say at the beginning, uh, I don't know what I'm doing. Uh, and so uh, if there's anything uh, that I should be doing, uh, just let me know. Um, and, you know, I thought, you know, sure, you know, here I am head of the committee, but it's my first time. And so, of course, I make it clear, I don't know what I'm doing. And I use precisely those words. Um, and I thought everything was fine until uh, afterwards, or, uh, shortly afterwards, um, my two faculty mentors uh, said, actually, you shouldn't really uh, admit that you don't know what you're doing. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, of course, everything went fine. You know, I, I, I've been in these committees before and I, I knew pretty much what, more or less what to expect. But, uh, um, but, uh, but the lesson I learned is that in my environment, I shouldn't, uh, I shouldn't make it so obvious that I don't know what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. Yes, that's quite a conundrum, isn't it? You know, I think the same thing is true of uh, people in the medical profession. I've read studies that um, that doctors who appear to know exactly what they're doing, whether they do or not, uh, are more trusted by their patients than doctors who say, I'm not really sure about that. I'm going to need to do some research, mm. which to me is very sad. That really, it saddens me. Because um, 
Yeah. Like, I think that there's a certain kind of coping strategy with not knowing, which is to appear as if you do. That many, many uh, people learn early on in their careers. It's not safe to not know. Right. So I, uh, uh, I understand your, your sentiment, the, the feeling of like, it's, I'm, I'm learning that it's not okay. And, um, you know, I, I would say that this is true of, uh, not just this modern world, but, uh, uh, of any profession. And yet, um, I'm starting to learn, not starting, but I've been learning that when somebody seems like they're super confident about something and they seem like they really know, there's always this little bit of like, what's going on over here? Like, you know, you may seem like you are more certain than, uh, than I, I'm willing to trust, right? What's that? What's underneath that certainty, right? So it's a balance, right? <laughs> I did go to a doctor recently who was just like, um, said something like i'm gonna have to google that (laughs) did not that did not inspire confidence (laughs) right um drew oh wait a minute i think i yes drew and then uh rich i see rich made a comment in the chat box but go ahead drew yeah that's very uh rich question that you you and jose have been discussing about um about like whether to how how people appear competent or not uh, depending on how they present themselves and there have actually been like of course like little um little studies i've given people certain tasks and apparent and see how they do compared to how they think they're doing and they found that there's often a negative correlation between how people how good people think they are and how good they actually are. Yeah. And um, I, I definitely find that in my life, like the, the more I learn, like the more it's clear, I don't know. And uh, it's like the the edge, as like I expand my knowledge, also the edge between what I know and don't know grows larger. So I, I can like every book I read references like dozens of people's life work that I'll never have the time to read. And yeah. like, I am such a small particle compared to what there is to know. And yeah, I, I find that yeah, people who seem to know things I instinctively dis distrust people who think <laughs> they they are very good at things. So. Yeah, that's my perspective, at least. Thank you. Um, let's see, Rich. Rich, do you want to read your comment? And then Pat. So, but Rich first. Okay. Yeah. Uh, uh, so I wrote, uh, in thinking about reopening, a meet, is meeting in person as what's best a fixed view is in-person meeting superior and virtual inferior. What about not knowing which is best? What about not always so? Yes, great questions. I mean, I, I in the in public schools, the teachers have been struggling with like they had to jump off the pole basically when it was like time to go virtual, and they're all like, oh, yes. "Wait, what? I've never done that before. I've never been trained on how to do that." I spent my whole adult life training and and learning how to do in person with children, and now you're asking me to do this thing, like in a week, like just suddenly, you got to be a virtual teacher now. And it's like what you know. And um, for a lot of teachers, their response was, "I don't feel like I'm teaching. I don't feel like I'm doing. I'm not really. This is not who I am." And it was like that sort of deep sense of like this is part of my ego to do in person teaching with children. And to do this virtually felt like I'm not doing my job. I'm not real. This isn't real. This isn't somehow what I'm supposed to be doing. 
you know, and it was sort of like, it's something, this, this unconscious bias that was deeply ingrained that they weren't even aware of until they had to like suddenly become a virtual teacher and change everything they, they had been doing before. Um, I don't know if you've had that feeling, but I, yeah, I, <laughs> yeah, I kind of get the sense that that's what you're experiencing. Cause I've, I've seen it a lot in the teachers that I work with. Yeah. But they're like, who am I? I don't understand what's going on. You know, Ther- what are, why are we doing this? Yeah. Therapists as well have that, have, uh, uh, have had that uh, that feeling. Many of them, not all, not all. And and yes, I I really do. Um, I appreciate your question in the sense of like having a fixed view, whether it's uh, you know having a fixed view means you think it's a right view, right? And that can be very limiting, right? Because there's no doubt that going through this past time of having to show up online as opposed to in person has opened new doors. I'm surprised at how actually the things that I've learned from having to sit by myself, it's like thrown the, the practice back on myself. Like it's up on, it's on me to do the practice in a way that sitting together. I mean, I love you guys and I love sitting with you, but sometimes I'm like, maybe a little too dependent on other people to do it with you. You know, like I, this, this time, this year and a half of sitting by myself with a little screen has actually taught me a lot about my own inability to sit, you know, without somebody else doing it with me, you know, and it's like, that's been a really important training, you know? So in some ways that's been really helpful. And um, I think it's made me realize that maybe virtual is not so bad, and for some people, it's really necessary. And yeah. for some people, the only way to do it is in person. And I'm not sure which is which. And it could change too, right? I mean, a lot of it's what do you have to work with? It's like, what if you don't have a choice? Like we didn't have a choice collectively. You know, I had a um, last weekend, I missed the Saturday program because I was in a conference um, where we had a number of different guest speakers come and do little short presentations. One of the short presentations that we had, um, I'm going to mute you, Rich, because I think I'm hearing an echo. Okay. Um, one of the short presentations we had was uh, given by a friend who is a Buddhist, she's a Buddhist chaplain working in the most, one of two of the most violent prisons uh, in Canada. And she co-led a presentation with another Buddhist chaplain who was working in the other violent, most violent prison on the other coast of Canada. And as Dharma teachers, you know, we have this whole, I'm not speaking for all Dharma teachers, but just in general, there's this whole, uh, you know, you speak from your own experience, obviously, right? You can't not speak from your own experience. And you read lots of things and you can speak from what you read. But what they were both bringing up was all bets are off when you enter into a place that you cannot uh, assume that general, these practices that, you know, we, we use, we, we recommend books. We say, oh, go do this. We say things like, oh, why don't you go take a stroll in nature, right? Getting out in nature is a way to reconnect with your deeper, you know, being. Well, you know, guess what? Maximum security prisoners aren't allowed in nature. They don't have any shred of like greenery in their, in their world. It's all concrete and metal. Right. So some of the instructions that are so helpful to people, they they have nothing to offer to people who are in lockdown in, in maximum security prisons. Right. So they have to adapt. So their presentation was really beautiful and eye opening and uh, just uh, heart opening, the heart opening of, wow, how how do uh, how does you be a bodhisattva and enter into a hell realm? Actually, right? We talk about that, right? The six realms, and in each of the in the wheel of life, with Mara holding the wheel of the six realms of existence. In each of these realms, and we're in the human realm, right? We we there's the animal realm, a hell realm, the hungry ghost realm, the 
the God realm, right? The Bodhisattva is in each of those realms, and the tools that the Bodhisattva has at their disposal are different depending on the circumstances. So being pushed into a circumstance that we is not to our liking, it's really hard. And it's really easy to be like, I can't do this. <laughs> There's the hundred foot pole right there. Because guess what? What are you going to do next? Can you just put pause and say, okay, I'm going to go into hibernation until this whole thing is over? You can try. <laughs> and sometimes when you have means, it's actually a, it's a curse, right? It's a curse to have means in a way, because it means that you can isolate yourself, you can insulate yourself from a shared reality of the rest of the world who may not have as many means, right? And so it's a blessing and a curse. It's like, oh, I feel so fortunate. I don't need to do X, Y, and Z because I have a job that lets me work remotely, or I don't need to put myself out on the front lines, right? So most of our lives, I think as humans, just it's natural to try to come up with like, what are the different elements that are going to keep me safe, right? And it's not that we don't just don't do that, right? Of course we, we do that. That's called taking care of, a, of our human life. And yet it can also go too far, right? Our circumstances could be that we just happen to grow up living near the money river, <laughs> <laughs> and we can go buy an island somewhere in the Pacific and move to it and ride this thing out and invite our friends who jet over or whatever, right? So it's it's amazing how, um, you know, no matter what our circumstances, there's a Dharma gate there. That's the point of this talk. There's a Dharma gate to step through. And um, in terms of this... Uh, you know, Rich, what you're bringing up about this and what, what about not always so? Yeah. What about that not always so? We think we know something. We think we have the tools. Oh, I'm ready. Now I feel ready. Well, you know, guess what? <laughs> that will change. Pat, did you, uh, do you want to say something? No, I withdraw. I think you've already covered much more eloquently what I was going to say. Any last minute uh, comments, questions, complaints, grievances? <laughs> I wanted to say, I wanted to say thank you. Hey, Shuli. Hearing you back makes me live again. <laughs> Thank you. So to hear your voice. So how do we uh, how do we take a step forward as a community, as well? Right. I mean, it's just you know, showing up and seeing what happens. Hopefully, with a a feeling of. Uh, Wonder, curiosity, gentleness. And when those things are not forthcoming, patience. It's a big one. So thank you all very much. And uh, I'm going to go ahead and uh, set up some, some breakout rooms if you would like to stay and...